Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Squarespace.com. They're the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, just head over to Squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP6. And now they're offering free domain registration with annual plan subscriptions. This week on TWIP, Canon is set to announce the Rebel T4i, GoPro goes wireless, Nikon files a patent for sharper in-camera panning. Also, we answer the question, why are photographers stealing from other photographers? And an interview with Jeff Dunis from the Palm Springs Photo Festival. It's Wednesday, June 6th, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we've got a uh, couple of familiar voices and a voice that hasn't been on the show in a while because presumably he's been running around the world taking photos. We've got Miss Sarah France, Mr. Martin Bailey, and the elusive Mr. Steve Simon. Hey, guys. Hi. Good evening. Good morning. Good evening, good morning. Yes. Uh, Steve, let's start with you out in New York City there. What have you been up to? What, what's, what's going on in the world of Steve Simon? Well, I uh, just got back from Copenhagen, which is a beautiful city. I had a, a really interesting gig. I was photographing uh, with the Nikon One camera, which I have learned to love. Mm. Uh, it's, it's just a really uh, fat, you know, I'm used to obviously the, the bigger DSLRs, but uh, the Nikon One is, is really fast and responsive autofocus-wise. So oh, yeah. I've been lusting the... after that thing, just especially just the one feature of being able to take pictures without making a sound at all. I think it's well, just there you awesome. go. I mean, I, 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 I didn't use that so much because you know, I'm out in the city and I'm shooting on the streets, so sound sure. isn't really an issue. But that's totally cool. It's a great video camera, but I haven't used it for video. Um, just the autofocus, you know, the auto area autofocus is just amazingly responsive. You can just kind of aim your, aim your camera at the scene, and it tends to sort of give you sharp images. It knows kind of how to focus. So... Um, I'm actually going to try on my, my, my bigger Nikon's uh, auto area focusing and just want to see if it's been improved on the, on the D4 and the D800 because uh, on previous models, could not really use it with confidence. But after my Nikon 1 experience, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go and Very see what cool. happens. All right. All right. I mean, let me know what you think of that one because I am, I'm still, like I was telling people on Google Plus the other day, I'm still chugging along with my Canon G9 as my point and shoot. Between that and my iPhone, I'm, I'm pretty well covered. But, you know, I have a feeling the G9 is going to, uh, you know, it's going to throw up the white flag in a while. Yeah. My great grandfather had a G9 and <laughs> he still uses it. He really likes it. Hey, in my day, all the kids had G9s. <laughs> All right. The, the other voice you hear back there is Miss Sarah France. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, anything new? We just spoke not too long ago. Anything new since the last time we spoke? 
Um, well, I peeled myself off the beach to do the podcast today, so I'm still wet <laughs> from the ocean and I have salt in my hair. But um, so I'm really glad this is not a video show today. Very I'm really good. excited about that. But other than that, just you know, lots of lots of business and exciting weddings and all sorts of good stuff like that. Awesome, awesome, cool. Mm-hmm. And then finally on the show, Mr. Martin Bailey coming to us from the wonderful city of Tokyo, Japan. Hey, Martin. Good afternoon. Let's just split the difference. Yeah, split um, the difference. Or just say good day. How about good that? Good day. Good day. <laughs> good day. What's going on with you? Uh, I, I've i had a, a busy week. We're still uh, working on the venues and some, some sponsorship for the Pixels to Pigment seminar that I'm bringing over to you guys in September. Cool. And... Uh, I've also i I got a little bit sort of disenchanted with the with the size of the images in the 500px portfolios, which is where where I was showing some of my some of my sort of more select work. So I put a new website together this week called martinbaileyportfolios.com, and cool. and I've I've used that the totally full widescreen thing, so you can go you can go full nine what is it nine nine twenty nineteen hundred or something by. Uh, 1,200 or something screens, and they they the images are literally full screen. So, um, if if you want if you want wallpaper, then that's where to go, uh, <laughs> because I've not protected them at all. But they, you know, it's 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 pretty cool. It's I've still got a few portfolios to load there for different types of genres, but um, it's it's looking good. So I'm I'm quite happy with the way that's coming on. Now now, when you say you're disenchanted with them, are you saying because the images are so large or so or small? So they, small. Okay. Yeah. The, I mean, since since I really started to get into Google Plus and the way you can see images there, I just wanted people to be able to, you know, rather than being over overly protective of the images themselves online, I wanted really just to give people as as large a view as the images as possible. So the I started looking into what what sort of things there were out there. And um, actually, a, a friend of mine here in Tokyo, an amazing HDR photographer, John Shear, J-O-N Shear, um, he used this theme a few months ago. He sent me an email and actually he called me and said, take a look at this. And I was just amazed at how cool his site looked. It's using the Atlas theme. Um, I, I'm not going to recommend Atlas to anybody because they have terrible um, support, technical support, and they... You know they're they're not very helpful at all, and the theme doesn't really comply to WordPress standards. Uh, so it's it's a pain to work with. So I'm not going to actually recommend it. But if anyone wonders what theme I've used, it's it's called Atlas, and it, it that's the one that John used. It just it just makes your images look great. You know, so I uh, I want to give people as large a view as they can, and because um, I know that people often tell me, oh, I'm, I've got your images as my wallpaper, yeah. and I'm fine with that. If people want to use my images for the wallpaper, that's that's I'm not only fine with that. That's a compliment. So yeah. that's what Trey yeah. Recliffe Trey Recliffe says something very similar to that. Um, right. And that that people can look at that. At, you said MartinBaileyPortfolios.com or portfolio portfolios.com okay yeah. plural and okay. and it's all linked to the top, to the top of my website so there's okay, a link cool. there. and we'll we'll definitely link to that in the show notes too thanks uh, all right guys um before we get started the listeners may notice that there's no video for this episode this week because we've been getting a couple of uh complaints about the audio quality of this week in photo since we switched over to google plus and that's I think that's mainly because in order to record the show through Google Plus, 
we can't do it the normal way without going into the technology and Skype and splitting channels and all that stuff. We can't do it the normal way that we typically do TWIP. So uh, as a result, the audio has suffered. So we made a call to or a decision to switch back to Skype for this episode while we work on ways to get the Google Plus Hangout audio up to a level that TWIP listeners have become accustomed to. So this week is audio only. And uh, we'll we'll kick off maybe a hangout, you know, later in the week or after this or something, just to give folks their hangout fix. But uh, the audio comes first for this kind of show. Anyway, the things that we're going to talk about on this audio-only episode of TWIP is Canon. They're set to announce announce the Rebel T4i. A big story that I want to talk about with you guys is GoPro going wireless. I'm a big fan of that because I've been on the fence about getting a GoPro. Um, Nikon has filed a patent for sharper in-camera panning. Um, and Steve, I know hopefully you can speak to that. And we're going to talk about this big story that broke last week. We're going to try to get to it, but we ran out of time. And that's some photographer or some photographers, but this story specifically about one photographer that's stealing or that stole from other photographers. And not so we'll talk about that story, but, but the bigger picture is the idea that some beginning photographers think it's okay to copy and paste and say it's their own in order to get get clients. And then finally, we've got a nice interview with Mr. Jeff Dunis. He's the guy, the mastermind behind the Palm Springs Photo Festival, Sarah, which I know you spoke at just this, this uh, just a couple months ago, as did I, right? Mm-hmm. That was great. Cool. So we got an interview with, uh, with Jeff Dunis. He's the guy that put that whole thing together. He's so cool. He is. He's a, he's a, a beret wearing hep cat. He is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. He is. All right. So let's jump into the news, guys. The first one, the first story up is the, is Canon releasing or ex, where they're expected to release the Rebel T4i. It's supposed to come out in a couple of days from now. Actually, when this episode of the show releases, the camera should be available. So it's supposed to be available on Friday. So, uh, We've got two Canon heads on the show and two Nikon heads on the show. You can guess who I'm going to ask about this camera and why it's significant. I'm going to throw it to you first, Sarah. The T4i, why do you need it? (laughs) Well, I don't know if I need it, but mostly I just want a couple of the things that they've added into it for our own cameras. Like, they're... the. T series, I guess, is maybe what they call it, TI series. I don't know. But the T2, T3i, I mean, these are always cameras I recommend to people who are kind of going from consumer to to more of a prosumer. Um, And they're fantastic cameras. So a a couple of things that are coming out, I mean, I love, obviously, um, that they've integrated some of the cross-type AF points in this as well, which I think is really important. And also the touchscreen LCD, I was really excited about as well as continuous autofocus in live view and in video mode mm, so that is kind a of cool. lo- yeah those are the things that i felt like technology wise were just were nice jumps so um i'm excited to see some of those kind of end up in some of our cameras but i'm kind of curious why they weren't in like the 5d mark three yeah yeah so do you think you think you think the t4i is a is a kind of a, a test bed or a foreshadowing of what's going to show up in the larger cameras? 
Yeah, I mean, that's usually the case, but what it, what's interesting with Canon, I mean, they kind of did this with the T, I think it was the T3i and the 5D Mark II. They released the 5D Mark II and then released like is some even better features of video in the T2i. So, or the T3i. So I found that really interesting too. So I, they must be doing it for, for market testing of some sort and not wanting to throw it to the pros first. But um, I think it is, it looks like a great camera. It's going to be an incredible prosumer camera um, and also just an all around, you know, great addition to the Canon family. So pretty excited about it. Not that I want to go out and buy one, but... Speaking personally. of going out and buy one, Martin probably has two or three of them on order already, right, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I think that the, the, the T-something I series is great, but honestly, for me, I, I, I find them hard to hold because they're so small. You know, Even with a battery grip, I, I prefer a larger camera that I can, you know, something to get hold of. But they they're great, you know. I mean, it's it really is. Uh, it's a, a for the price of these things, they're they're a great introduction to to DSLRs. And and if you have, uh, you know, if you if you don't, you're not worried about the substantial size and stuff of a, of a larger, more expensive body. Then these are great. They're great little uh, cameras. But you know, it, it just seems like I hear you talking about it's a great little camera and it's an introduction. But you look at the spec for this thing; it's right, got an 18 right. megapixel sensor and. I mean, all this crazy stuff that four years ago we would have thought was like NASA technology for the space shuttle and completely out of reach. And mm-hmm. and from what I can gauge, you know, the light hitting us from the sun hasn't changed much in those couple of years. So, I mean, why, you know, it's just it's just interesting how we get our minds around this. You know, we look at the, it's just a rebel and I don't want that. But it's doing some amazing stuff, right? Sure. For, for me, I mean, really, it's all about the size with this. And if it was... Um if it was a little bit larger, then it, it, it would be more interesting to me. But the other thing is, is that this is, although they're cross-type AF points, it's still a, a nine a nine point AF system. Whereas the the five D now has, has moved from nine to sixty one, and and it's an amazing autofocus system that they've put into the five D Mark III. Yeah. So they are they are moving those forward. And I was never happy with the AF on the on the old on the five D Mark II. So. Things are moving forward, but I mean, but like you say, the four or five years ago, the the five D was the best thing since the sliced bread. So yeah, yeah people so thought people it was were, alien technology, and now right, it's like- right, right. But that's progress. I mean, we we're always we're going to find ways to, um, you know, to cash in and, and to really utilize the the new features that that Canon build into these things and force us to part with huge sums of money every few years. Um, and so it's well, obviously we're not forced to do anything. And, and as I said recently, if you if you're one of the people that are happy with the camera you've got, then then that's fine. You know, there's no need to. They don't all of a sudden become crap cameras just because there's something better on the market. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, also on the the Canon front, it looks like their the rumor mill says that Canon is is set to announce a new 70D and a new um, EOS 3D. Along with a mirrorless camera, maybe it'll be like Steve. Maybe it'll be like that uh, Nikon One. I don't know. I mean, what do you, have you guys heard anything about this stuff? I I was I am really interested in the 3D. I, I and the mirrorless, but uh, the 3D to me that that makes me feel as though I 
I, I still am looking very much forward to the One DX that I've got on order. <laughs> um, and and until now, I have been. I, I've I usually keep three cameras. At the moment, I've got the One DS, the One D, and the Five D. And I just upgrade those three lines as they come out. But it's a lot of money, and you know we all we all have to keep a roof over our heads. And so when when you've got a One DX coming out, and then maybe I don't know if it, even if it's announced, and then six months later it comes out the three D. Um, they're saying that this is a this is a one series body, which basically puts it in the same class um, as as the uh, you know the the One D and the One DS. And if that's true, then that's my Antarctica and rough weather camera. Um, and so that would, that would literally replace the 5D Mark III, which I've only just part, parted with $3,000 for. So, you know, it, it makes you wonder, do you, do you need to... Um, for me, obviously, I, I like to have the most megapixels. And I know that it's not all about megapixels, but with me, I mean, I, do, I sell some, some pretty large prints. And, and I, I, actually, I think I, saw, I showed you a... Um, some some photos of a a deal that I did with with someone in the Netherlands last week, um, Frederick. We were, right, I showed right. you those those cafeteria photos. I mean, they were literally five meters wide. Those were murals. And, those weren't photos. Right, those were right. murals. Uh, but but they were they were printed with in sections, but printed um, from digital files. And we had to move away from the client's original uh, re- requested images, which were five D. And not 5D Mark II. They were only 12, only 12 megapixels. Um, so it does matter sometimes. And so if if I can get 30 plus megapixels in a 3D, then that's that's where my money's going to be. Um, even if it means selling the 5D Mark III. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Switching off, switching gears away from Canon and on to GoPro, the the camera from the folks over at Woodman Labs. Um, they've got this popular GoPro HD Hero line. These are those, for folks that don't know, these are like compact, lightweight, rugged HD cameras that you can basically, or their mantra is that you can take them anywhere and shoot anywhere, yada, yada, yada. But the news about them, the cameras have been around for a while. The news is effective immediately or available immediately is the Wi-Fi or the GoPro Wi-Fi backpack which allows any Hero 2 camera to be remotely controlled from your iOS or Android smartphone or tablet. Um, So you can change camera settings, start and stop video, burst capture, live stream from the camera, um, and control up to 50 separate cameras. So... So basically, you could be sitting there, Steve Simon. You could be sitting there in Africa somewhere with GoPros set up all over the place, capturing video and switching between the cameras and choosing what to record on your iPhone or your tablet with up to fifty cameras. Now, is that something you'd be interested in? Would you? Are you looking at this camera, or is this just oh. like video? I don't care. Yeah, I don't care. No, I, I care. I care, man. I care. No, That's my I, New York accent. I was trying to relate to you. Uh, I, I don't have anything like a New York accent. I still got my Canadian accent. You do. A, that I've, uh, I just can't get rid of. But no, I think the GoPro system is, a, is amazing. I haven't made use of it yet, but I know it's there, and I know that I, I will at some point. I mean, it's great to be able... I saw a guy just walking the streets of New York. He had a GoPro camera on his head, like just like a, I don't know what he was doing, but he was just sort of recording, <laughs> recording his walk in New York. But it, it really is amazing. And I think there's so many ways that we can utilize it. And, you know, as photographers, we're all always looking for new ways to, to tell stories. And it's a nice, it's a nice way to kind of add 
another element to your storytelling uh, photographic process. So I haven't experienced it yet. I haven't played much with video yet. I know it's there. I have uh, ideas that I want to get, um, you know, want to try some things out, but I just yeah. haven't been able to do it. But I think it's great, and I, I understand um, why the GoPro has, has been such a, a great success. It's been affordable and uh, allowed kind of really amazing um, never before seen or at least never cheaply or out of, out of range of, of sort of the average photographer to be able to to do the kind of things that uh, it allows you to do yeah it's crazy it's crazy Sarah mm-hmm. like on your your line of work the, the weddings and things that you know I I know you know I mean I don't know if you do a lot of video you know and if you did would you see a place where you could you know maybe position two or three of these things around and have your assistant capturing video or is that just like pushing it too far well, we, I mean, we work with videographers a lot, some that we closely recommend and closely work with. So, and and I definitely dabble in, in a little bit of video and GoPros are fantastic, but, um, you know, what I see even more than using it for professional is using these things for personal. I mean, I was in Palm Springs all weekend and, and I wasn't bringing my camera around the pool. We had... We had underwater GoPros and we we're like swimming and oh, cool. and doing underwater photography with it. Um, and I was just like I was telling you, I was out at the beach today and we had two GoPros with us at the beach filming like on our heads from like basically like filming the scuba diving and then, you know, the coast and stuff like that. So personally, I'm finding these GoPros to be like really amazing i just shot um i went up in a helicopter a few a a month or so ago and we shot the whole thing really with with gopros and um a couple shots from my professional camera so um all the video personal video that i'm getting right now is is a lot of it is from the from the gopros so i was super excited to hear about these backs and um and there's inexpensive too that's the thing with these is that you can really have a great um like hour long of footage on these things and and they're so inexpensive Mm -hmm. for people to to purchase and have really great video so um i think the new technology on this is going to be really amazing and it's going to be interesting to see not only what it does for for video in the wedding industry um, because I know a lot of people that use it in conjunction with their other cameras just to capture some things that they can just set up and let it go. They use it a lot for um, for doing filming of kind of everything getting set up and then and then running through kind of a fast paced version of it. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's fantastic. And, and I'm excited to see what what people are able to do with it because you can hook these things to like anything <laughs> yeah i mean they're just so tiny you can stay and they have they, they come with these harness or you can buy these harnesses so you can stick them on your chest and go skydiving or mountain biking or you know oh yeah all my this friend, crazy stuff my friend films like crazy videos of motorcycling motorcycle like through the malibu hills and stuff it's just it's insane to see what people are doing with these because you can strap them on your foot or your your motorcycle <laughs> you don't want to be strapping steve or... simon don't be putting this on your foot in the subway all right no, I've, I've, got a, I've got an ass cam in my uh, or you can go you can go underwater with it you can put it on and strap it to a little like helicopter that flies and does a ton of aerial photography it's amazing it's really cool so 
I, I'm super excited for the people at GoPro. They've done a great job with this with this yeah. product. This is this is time for me to get off the fence and and get one. They they, they said the magic oh, yeah. word Wi-Fi, and so now it's time for me to get one or two of these things. Martin, can you can you see yourself using this in in say your workshops to record yourself doing the workshops or on one of your adventures or anything? Absolutely, yeah. And, and like you say, at the price, I I've uh, I've not. I don't think I can even get them easily here in Japan, but obviously I, I, I've got my eyes on this technology um, and probably will be doing a, a, a little B&H order at some point <laughs> for some of the... And, I mean, and you can actually... I mean, it, it actually is so inexpensive. You can save for some of these, and, it's, and you're not just being silly. It's, you know, the, I, I'm reading on the website, you could do this 50-camera setup for $10,000. Isn't that crazy? Like, that right. is crazy. 50. Yeah. 50. And, That's insane. My my one DS cost as much as that for one camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, well, obviously, it's di- it's different stuff. It, it it's it's not as though you you can do the same thing with one of these as you can with the top of the range DSLR. Sure. But f- but for what they're made for, they 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 do an excellent job. And and for the price, you can't you can't complain. Yeah. Well, you could completely saturate a scene with video from every conceivable angle if you wanted to with these right, cameras right, and control yeah. each of the 50 cameras remotely. That's yeah. just that's just like, you know, Mission Impossible stuff right there. It's crazy. <laughs> and and it's saying that you can you can control up to 50 with one of these backpack units. So it's like and or or one of the remote units. I one forget of the remote, which one it yeah. is. Yeah. So it's like it's it's not as though you need uh, to to buy a remote for every one of them, you've got one will control all fifty. So it's it's That's good crazy. stuff. That's crazy. I think you have to buy the backpack for one, but then one device can control. You have to buy a backpack for every single one, if I understand correctly. But the back, but then one device can control them all. Yeah, that's, that sounds plausible. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And did you a couple weeks ago they released a dive housing that looks really sweet too? So you can go down um, sixty meters now. Um, that's one hundred and ninety-seven feet, I think, is what they Jeez. said. So, and it's it helps with the lens distortion. So today we were using just the regular housing, which gives it a little more of a distorted view. But I'm definitely going to grab one of those dive housings and. Next time I go scuba diving, just strap one on my head. Wow. Yeah. So fun. Me too. But I, I think I have to learn how to scuba dive first and then maybe <laughs> oh. I'll start recording it because that could get ugly. <laughs> you know, recording <laughs> Frederick thrashing around in the water. <laughs> I, I'd have to lose 30 pounds before I could get my stomach out in public. That could get even more ugly. <laughs> yeah. And Steve, you are not going scuba diving in the Hudson. I just got to tell you. <laughs> no. Don't even do it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I just want to give you a word of advice. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Steve, while we're talking to you, the next story up is about Nikon. So Nikon has filed a patent for, for sharper in-camera panning. And essentially what it looks like from this article, it looks like what it does is it takes two photographs, one at a slower shutter speed and another one at a faster. And then the computer inside the camera will blend the images together and and extract data to somehow give you a better image, right? Now, do you know any? You know anything? Obviously, you know how to take a a panned image, but does this technology make sense to you? And have, uh, do you know anything you know, about it? Just, it it, uh, it just ain't natural. You know what I mean? <laughs> it ain't right. It, it's, super, it ain't right. it's supernatural. <laughs> it, you know, I'm I'm okay with panning using VR, which gives you a nice smooth pan. But it's kind of the old fashioned way. But you know what? I think that something like this is is not aimed necessarily at the uh, more advanced photographer. I think it's a feature they'll probably put in. Who knows? Maybe some of their cool pics and 
maybe some of their their uh, entry level cameras. I think it could be fun to experiment with for for people uh, that want to try it. But um, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I, it is you have to have a certain level of understanding of of photography in order to take, say, a panning image of a you know a bicycle rider in a marathon or something. Yeah. You know, running and have the background blurred with the subject frozen. Right. Yeah, so you got to yeah. know what you're doing. Exactly. So they're just this, taking this the. You got to know what you're doing out of the mix. Yeah, although this one I think maybe makes it a little uh, – I don't think you necessarily have to know all that much because if it's going to do this blending, I, I think there will be some knowledge there. Part of the magic I think that because I'm – you know, I came up through film, I like the surprise of photography. And I think you know, with panning, even though we have that kind of instant gratification to check things out – you never know exactly what it's going to look like, and you really have to trial and error. So, And it's not easy to get a really, really good panned image. So it's fun to kind of experiment. When you get it, it's really exciting. Um, this is kind of a little bit uh, gimmicky, I guess, in a lot of ways. But, you know, if it works, great. And, uh, you know, who knows? But I'm, I'm not a big panner, generally speaking. But, you know, sometimes I will. Yeah. Martin, do you, do you think there's there's... Uh, you know, we've been seeing more and more of this computational photography stuff, both on the on the software side and in camera bodies, being able to do things like like this. You know, make panorama or make uh, panning easier. We've seen technology to make it from Sony in particular to make making panoramas easy. You just kind of sweep the camera from left to right, and it does a panorama. Mm. Um, in camera retouching, it goes on and on. Do you do you where do you fall on the on the side of let the camera's computer figure things out for you and make life easier, or do you, you know, or is it, you know, just learn how to do it as a photographer, photographer, and suck it up, and you know, stop relying on the force. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I think. I mean, we we actually spend um, uh, some time on my Hokkaido workshops. We we have a place where we we have swans, Hooper swans, fly in from the side and. And we spend a couple of hours on some of the afternoons up there actually working on panning techniques and, and trying to, you know, I, I tell the group the best shutter speeds and, uh, you, know, folk, the, the, you know, where they should be with their aperture and stuff like that. And so we, now you'll have, you can end a couple hours early. Right. Well, I, I mean, I was just going <laughs> to... They just took away a whole revenue this. stream for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well... What will happen is we'll have everyone that is there with their old cameras and their cannons will be there for three or four hours and come away with maybe two or three images. And the Nikon guy will walk off the bus and go, snap, and then see you later, guys. And he'll be in the hot spring at the hotel for the next He'll few probably hours. still be on the bus shooting. He won't have to yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I think that there's, there's always going to be, even if, even if the technology gets to the point where it's, it makes it easier. You still got to know how to. I'm sure you'll still need to set a, a good sh- uh, shutter speed for this, and you've still got to know how to compose a shot and when to to trip the shot. Until, of course, we just live our whole wor- worlds with Google spectacles on and then just take photos <laughs> totally. from the past. Yeah, and just but, review the footage later and pick the right yeah. images. Yeah, <laughs> but it's. I, I mean, there's always going to be a need for for the photographer's brain and eyes and and heart to be behind the images. So I don't think it's going to be something that is is going to necessarily hurt the you know the industry or anything. But it, it's it's interesting to see how these things come. You know, it's, there's a lot of changes happening, and um, people with a bit of imagination generally tend to to use it to its full. And and it, it all helps to bring the whole sort of 
the, the level of photography up in, in across the world in many ways. But yeah, you know, I think that you will always need the the original, um, you know, where to go, what to shoot, and how to compose it, and and when to actually trip the shutters all down to the human. Yeah. Now, Sarah, on, in your world, time is money, right? So because you're you know, you're at a wedding and there's a finite amount of time in order to get this, the different components of the wedding. You got to nail it right every single time. Now, in your case, of course, you've been shooting for a while, so you know what you're doing intrinsically when you're out there shooting a wedding. But what about the new wedding photographer? Will these tools, like the automation and the software and hardware advancements, will they will they make better wedding photographers out of the newer people coming into the into the business? Hmm. I mean, I. Uh, that, that's a good question. I think if you know your, your tool and, and like your camera is really what you use as to create your art. So, you know, a lot of times photographers come in and they know everything about the history of photography and they know all this kind of ethereal stuff, but they have no idea how to use their camera. So it's kind of, I think as long as they understand how to use the tools that are available to them, it will definitely help. Um, so the more tools that are available, the more they can kind of use, use that. Is it going to like help them straight out of the box? I don't, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the case, but, um, you know, anything that can kind of give photographers a, a better image or help them create better art is fantastic. So yeah. I say bring on the technology. Yeah. yeah, Fred, I'll, I'll just add that, you know, when autofocus first came out, for example, I mean, you know, sports mm-hmm. photographers who, who sort of base their career on developing their skills for follow focusing, suddenly, you know, it was, it was, it was unnecessary because mm-hmm. the cameras were, were better. But those great sports photographers embraced autofocus and their images still rose above the fray. So as, as Martin and Sarah were saying, it's, it's really the technology is, is amazing. We can use it. But it's 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 not the most important thing, as we know. It's it's still the vision and the idea of the of the photographer, um, you know, behind the camera to to use the technology to get what it is that they're wanting to say with their photography. Absolutely. And Martin, Martin, you and I spoke about this a, a while a while back, I think, and it was about. I think the gist of our conversation was that. Um, you know, photographers in general, yeah, the gear and all this stuff is important, but what is paramount for people to understand is that you need to get your brain around the fundamentals of photography that include exposure, you know, composition, how how the mechanics of photography work, so that when you're presented with these cool tools like this panning technology, you know what is going on in the background, right? So, right, right. so, so then as I, as I was talking through that, in my head, I'm thinking... But does it matter, right? So, you know, we're living... I think, you know, fundamentally, yeah, understanding light exposure, all that stuff is key. But things like technique-based things like panning and that sort of thing, if you can not have to think about it anymore and concentrate more on the composition and engaging the subject and all that stuff, and you can just leave it to the camera to figure out, you you know what mode to put it in, but you can leave it to the camera to figure out how to set it to itself to get the correct pan and exposure. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Martin, I'll throw it to you. I, I think 
whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it's going to happen. Yeah. There's, you know, progress is is always going to keep steaming forward. Um, and and I think that even now we we've taken away a huge amount of the the skill necessary to to actually get good exposure. Even um, yeah. in, in that we can we can if we want to we can snap a few shots and and look at the histogram and and you know we're basically it will tell us we've got instant feedback on on how to expose images now um and and if you want to take it a, a step further a lot of people these days are even not really caring too much about exposure because the sliders in in lightroom work so well now that yeah. you don't <laughs> i mean if, you can shoot everything yeah. two steps underexposed and right. still get a great image right right i mean i i love to nail exposure because it gives me the best resulting files the best quality files but I know a lot of people that just don't pay much attention to it anymore, and so I think it's already changing to the to a point. Um, yeah. And I mean, like like Steve says, even autofocus. I was talking with a friend of mine, um, Hiroshi Yokoyama. He's a a very well known uh, photographer here in Japan, and he literally he worked for a company um, here in here in Japan that. He was there was a, he was kind of attached to an one of his mentors was an older Japanese. I mean, this guy's in his seventies now. Um, I was I was literally talking to him one evening on my my workshop in Hokkaido. He, he came to the hotel we were going to be in because he knew we'd be there. Bless him. Um, but he uh, we were talking and he said that Canon uh, sent this company one of their first autofocus cameras when they were developing it. It was a prototype. Mm. And I forget which Olympics it was. It was probably in the 80s or um, either the late 70s or the 80s. And literally, Canon sent this camera in. And his mentor, his, his basically his superior, said, I, I can't use this newfangled camera. <laughs> he said, you know, you, you take it to the Olympics. And he was telling me that they, they basically, they went, I think they went together and they had the vests and this the, his his superior guy basically ripped his vest in half and they put the front and the back on both of their fronts and he just he said just don't take your backpack off and so so they literally shot the olympics but he was telling me that this new equipment that came out autofocus this brand new thing just as steve was saying until then these guys had been nailing skiers coming down the side of mountains in the winter winter olympics um, with with all, uh, you know manual focus, and obviously they were focusing on points where they knew the skiers were going to be, and they weren't necessarily like doing imitating AI servo, but they they were still getting the shots. But now, I mean, look look how natural and how yeah you know, autofocus. You can't really buy, although there are, there are manual focus lenses, you can't really buy a non autofocus camera anymore. Right. Um, so it all just becomes second nature. It, it becomes. The, the norm very quickly. It's becoming the norm, just like when you get in your car. It used to be, maybe I'm dating myself, but it used to be a big deal when you had power windows. You know, it's like, oh, right. the car has power windows. Awesome. Yeah. Look at that. It's magic. And then, you know, because everybody had the crank. And now you look at a car. I don't think there's any cars any or late model cars that you can buy that don't have power windows, even the entry level cars. How old, how old are you, Frederick? Uh, I'll be seventy two next month, Steve. I'm, I'm chasing you. I'm chasing you. You look so good for your age. You had work done, Sarah. Hey, He's got a lot yeah. of work done. I still got it. I'm doing my old man dance right now. I still got it. <laughs> Oh, man. With your G9. <laughs> With my G9, yes. Does that have autofocus? It has autofocus, yes. <laughs> and it and it, spell, it smells like menthol for some reason. I don't know why. 
love that camera. Leave it alone. I've still got a G3. They're great little cameras. Yeah, they're great. I'm keeping it until it dies. Until I see a little white flag pop out of the lens, I'm going to use it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I still have on my shelf my Yashica TL Electro X, my first camera ever mm. back in the day. Wow. Look at that. <laughs> Steve, let it go. Just <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. The next, the next story that I want to hit on is just kind of a. It's an update on a story that we talked about a while back. And Steve, I'm glad you're on the show because you've been to the Olympics. Martin, I'm not sure have, have, if you've been. Or no, not. no. Um, but this story was about the Olympic Committee barring people from posting images on social media sites that were shot at the Olympics, which they've later or they later said was not true so they refuted it but the <laughs> the uh the truth of it is a little bit stranger than what they were saying before so essentially the gist of this is and i want to get steve i want to get you to chime in on this first so they're saying in larger venues and this is not the official photographers that you know like steve you were an official photographer there this is everybody else so in larger venues or in venues um they're saying camera equipment over 12 inches, and I'm assuming they mean the, the lens. Well, they're saying the tripods, monopods, etc., will not be allowed in most venues. Also, they're saying that there's no storage available. So if you show up with your camera and they have to take it from you or security takes it from you, you will probably not be getting it back, which bodes not too good for people like Martin that would show up with like 40 grand worth of gear. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. And then and then they're saying um, you, you can bring your iPhone or Android phone into the venue, but you can't use them as Wi-Fi hotspots, meaning if you wanted to collect your or connect your your uh, your camera to it. Say you had a camera that like a G9 or something with a iFi card in it and you were trying to upload that way. They're saying that that is not going to be permitted. So. That last thing is, my question is, how would they even know <laughs> that you were transmitting? And then, Steve, I just want to throw it to you. What is, is any of this enforceable? I mean, I know they can enforce you walking in with a 600 mil lens, you know, a white lens, and they're like, uh, no, you can't come in with that. But the rest of it, is this stuff enforceable, you know, times the millions of people that are going to be watching this thing? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, you know, you're not going to find control freaks like you, you will an Olympic committee. And really? look, understandably, security is one thing, but this isn't security. They're extremely, uh, you know, extremely uh, tight on, on, on all these rules. And, you know, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. I mean, look, it's very expensive to, to purchase your ticket. Um, images uh, shot, you know, the Olympic logo all that stuff. I mean, it's all it's all about money, really. Yeah, but it just seems like I mean, yeah, it seems like it's all about money. But it seems like they should be putting this effort into, I don't know, maybe keeping Al Qaeda out of there instead Listen, of the oh, photographers. I mean, look, security, I'm sure, is going to be just ridiculously as it always is. But but this kind of thing doesn't surprise me, even for the press. I mean, there's there's very strict rules, and and you know, you're given certain positions, and and that's it. That's where that's the only place you can be. The other problem is, of course, that. You know, for any Olympics, they draft all these volunteers and, and people that are, you know, hired just for this, you know, two, three, four-week uh, event. And everybody's got different ideas as to what's allowed and what's not allowed. There's, you know, there's always this kind of thing. And for photographers, and particularly we know that, that London is not an easy place for photography because we've, we've seen that, uh, 
you know, the, the police uh, clamping down on, you know, hobbyist photographers just photographing in public. So, yeah, this is just, you know, magnify that to the power of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this idea that if you show up with your camera and basically it sounds like you're just going to have to either give it up and hope for the best, bury it maybe if there's some soft earth around. And, and hope that it'll be there, you know, when you come out, oh or just not show up at this thing. So, <laughs> or get I mean, get a really good ticket, sit in the front, and strap a GoPro to your chest. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I mean, really, you know, actually, you know, the the Nikon one, but with the little small sensor, you know, a fifty millimeter is like a hundred and thirty five. So a three hundred is like an eight hundred. So nice. that might be one way to get around things. But uh, Steve, yeah, I think you need to, totally- as as a veteran Olympic shooter, maybe this is a blog post for you. You know, how to circumvent Olympic security so that you can you can oh, get wow. a good shot at the Olympics in London. Yeah, I'm probably already on some watch list. <laughs> you know, well. you are. Right. Doesn't matter. If you weren't, you will be after this. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <laughs> I don't know. It's just crazy. Sarah, what do you think about this story? I mean, I mean, I I don't know. What, what do you think? I have my own opinions, obviously, but... <laughs> Maybe we should be asking you what you think. Yeah. Apparently, you are opinionated on the subject. I'm opinionated you know, on everything, you know. <laughs> so goals, you know, every, every new gray hair I get is a new opinion. So. <laughs> yeah. No, this is pretty intense. I mean, for sure, but... I, I mean, there's got to be some good reason for it. I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, exactly what it is, but maybe to protect the photographers that are, you yeah, know, it's, it's about money, it, Sarah. You know, they're very strict with accreditation, and even, even if you're an editorial photographer, you can't really commercially use images from the Olympics either. And, and they'll go out, they'll go, they'll go after you for, for that kind of thing. It's their it's business, right? It's their livelihood. Yeah. They, yeah. Wow. Well, I I guess, you know, as photographers, we are sensitive about protecting our livelihood as well. So, I mean, there there's a little bit of respect that has to happen there, you know. I'm not an Olympic ph- photographer, but if I was, I think I'd probably feel pretty good about this new rule and law and um and be excited about it. So, I I guess there are some ways that we can protect the industry a little bit, and this is probably one of them. I mean, yeah. if they're doing it for, if they're doing it for the, you know, for the protection of the photographers and for their jobs, then I can I can um, understand and have a little bit more appreciation for it. But if it's for their own, you know, greed for themselves and not for our industry, I might not have as much. Um, well, I mean, I mean, on the playing devil's advocate on this side of the Olympics, I don't, I don't know if greed is the right word. I mean, it's a business, right? So they, they have to make money, and it's, it's a with, brand. It's, it's a brand, everything. right? It's within their rights to to try to maximize their revenue as much as they can, and I don't fault them for that. I just, I just laugh at the unenforceability of some of the stuff, and and how some people like me maybe would try to uh you know do the like I was talking about before the mission impossible and get in there and get, you know make it a mission to get a really good shot of a javelin thrower but I don't you know, know there're going to be some disappointed people that show up oblivious to this rule with their, oh, yeah. you know Canon 80 to uh. their Nikon and and find out that no we can't let you win with that and you know what are you going to do and it's just you know, it's 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 overkill as far as I'm concerned, really. Yeah. Especially in this 2012 world where you know there are cameras everywhere, and in London there are more cameras 
in London just on the streets than probably anywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, the camera's taking pictures of the citizens, you mean, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to start a new law that you're not allowed to bring anything over like a point and shoot to any wedding that I shoot. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> I kidding. love it. You should try it. You should put that in your you contract. Yeah. So many people show up with like high-end cameras and lenses at, even at, at weddings, you know? I think so... But that's just my own opinion on on something on something different than a brand like the Olympics. But I will say that I think a really great business idea is to um, have lockers close to the Olympics <laughs> or where they go in and sell like storage space. Oh, I'm just totally, saying. yeah. That I mean, if they're not going to provide storage space, then somebody can make some cash on. Um, providing it because no one's gonna not go to the olympics because of their camera like they're gonna find somewhere to put it you know yeah so i hope they don't dig a hole though like you mentioned (laughs) and hope that it's there when they get back the problem the problem with that would be that some enterprising person would set up these lockers and then when everyone's put their thousands of thousands of pounds worth of gear in them <laughs> you'd find out that oh oh they've just taken the lockers away martin the, the lock, i was trying to get the idea to get some motion so that i could put hatch my master plan come on <laughs> Uh, you know, you definitely got to watch out for that. Whoever starts the business is going to have to have some sort of a fail safe that somebody's going to leave all their photography gear there. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, they could do something like like just have a big semi truck, you know, with that's outfitted <laughs> to to keep stuff. And then you just protect one end of it. Right. Put an armed guard out there and. And then somebody would steal the truck, probably. It would just say the, the Acme locker truck or something on the side. Exactly. And, and, then, and then before you know it, you, you just hear the, the engine start when in the middle of your games. And before you know it, you'd be, it'd, be, it'd be gone. Yep, yep. This sounds like a plot for that a movie. Not so. I know. I'm kind of wondering now. I mean, if everybody just runs back to their car and throws their stuff in their car, I mean, same. We're gonna have, they're going to have the same issues around security and things like that but i guess that's right. not necessarily their their issue but it is it's their brand mm-hmm. and it it was their choice to to do this so there's going to be some definite issues with it but i can kind of understand the the thought behind it i mean it's it's similar to like you know professional sports or you know going to a concert and you know they won't let you take pictures with your long lens even professionals usually you know we only get like 3 songs to shoot and that's mm-hmm. it. You can only stay that long. So they're protecting their brand. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. it it's definitely interesting. I'm, I want to see it. You know, I'll, I'll actually be in London in two weeks. So I'm going to do an experiment on myself. And I'm going to take my camera out. But I'm probably going to bring the D3. I'm going to bring it out with a long lens on there and just walk around taking pictures. And I want to see if I get stopped by anybody just for taking random pictures on the street. Because I don't, I don't, I think that rumor is a myth. So we'll see. I'm gonna make sure you strap a GoPro to your chest at, at the time as well, so that we can see yes. you being accosted. So I can get, I can get the police Please. stomping me in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, you're, I was in London with a camera. Are you not allowed to shoot like professional? I'm, I'm I don't know. I just, I hear, I hear mixed, re- mixed reports from different people saying that they get in trouble. Like even Alex Lindsay said he was there with his brother and his brother got stopped for just taking random pictures in an alley, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't, I can neither confirm nor refute any of that stuff. So I want to see it for myself. Hmm. 
Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna dress I'm gonna dress like you know like grungy so I look suspicious too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you already look suspicious. I know. You do not need to, you do not need to dress grungy. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. I love You're you welcome. too. <laughs> hey, Fre- Frederick. You know my brother's a policeman. I could probably arrange something while you're there. That would be. <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm, I'm totally getting up the topic. Maybe I should order a bunch of GoPros and set them up around a particular scene. <laughs> Yeah. And then go take pictures and like bait the cops to come get me <laughs> <laughs> and record it from fifty different angles. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh man! See all this, all these, all these plans hatching from this week in photo. It's not good. It's when entrepreneurs get together. We can't help but <laughs> well. Come up speaking with all speaking of nefarious plans, um, this other story that I want to chat about is about this photographer that got in trouble. I'm going to mention her name but we'll put some links in the show notes um to i think the thread that this was going on but apparently like i was saying in the beginning a photographer in conway arkansas stole the work blatantly stole the work of another photographer put it on her site saying that it was her own work and got a lot of business (laughs) you know it was it was an effort to to jumpstart her own business so the story around this is the social media universe sprang into act into action and outed her on the dishonest behavior and eventually she closed the business. So um, I'm going to throw it to you first, Steve, on this because you, I mean, you're the, you're the, uh, you know, I call you the quote classic photojournalist in the crowd. And if this is like your hundred percent livelihood, if somebody, what would you do if you were like, you know, you finally made it home, you know, from the subway, you're sitting in in the house drinking your glass of wine and you, you know, thumb through, you're on the website surfing around and you go to this one website and you see one of your pictures sitting there and with somebody else's name in the credits. What, yeah, what? or several images or, or actually someone's you know, sort of whole wedding. Yeah, you know, the it, whole wedding. Yeah, or the whole, a whole portfolio, you know. It's, it's incredible that someone would actually do this in the first place. Basically... Take images, you know, put them on their own wedding site, claim them as their own, and I mean, not only I'm, I just it's so wrong on so many levels. And as a as a photographer, I mean, I I feel bad for the her clients who have certain expectations that I suspect you know the image the quality of the images are, are nowhere near what she was was stealing the ones that she was making. Yeah, but um, it's it's an amazing story because it didn't take long, and I think it was. It was David Hobby's tweet that really got the ball rolling because, of course, Hobby's got thousands and thousands and thousands of, of followers and, and loyal ones, too. So when he kind of um, you know, raised his eyebrow, actually more than that, but just brought out to the, the, the fact that this was going on, um, that's when things started to really kind of mushroom. And I understand that uh, you know, her site had to – it's just amazing. It's amazing that someone would do it. If someone were to take my images, I mean, I, you know, again, I, I, I wouldn't be happy, of course, but, but uh, you know, it, it's just more shocking for me to watch and see kind of how this story unfolded. It truly was uh, amazing. It, it, within a, a 24-hour period, I mean, you know, you, how do you recover from this? I you mean, don't. You, your you, reputation you. is all you have in this business, especially, in, in, of course, in photojournalism, but I think photography in general. I mean, your reputation you need to protect with, with – it's the most important thing that you own. And, yep. and, and, for her, and you can't recover from this, really. I mean, she, she'd have to kind of 
I mean, not on a, on a, on a high level. Maybe she can in, in Conway, Arkansas and get back and, and, and start her business. But uh, it's, it's a good lesson, too. Just if you, if you ever have thoughts about if you ever have dark thoughts, uh, don't act on them because <laughs> it doesn't take long for, for, for this downward spiral to kind of throw you out of business. Yeah, and it seems, you know, for, for a beginning photographer, it might seem like, who's going to know? No one knows me. You know, I'm, I'm operating in this, this remote corner of the world, and I can just take these images and put them up there, and mm. only people on my street are going to see them anyway, you know? Exactly. And, you know it's like photographic ethics, you know, in, in journalism, you know, there's certain things that you don't do. You don't, you know, change your pixels around. You don't, uh, and, and many photojournalists have been seduced by the fact that they could make that image, you know, much stronger by sort of taking something, yeah. distracting out. They get caught and, you know, you just can't recover because it's your reputation is at stake. And, you know, there have even been some, some well-known uh, nature photographers who have gotten caught manipulating their images which they kind of put forward as being real mm. um and and when you do it puts everything else in, into doubt so this really is a lesson in you know sort of maintaining your reputation you yeah. have to decide where you want to be as a photographer it's it's totally fine to kind of do whatever you want in terms of photoshop and all that but if you pass yourself off as a wedding photographer then they need to be at the very least your images that you're showing. <laughs> you know, maybe. I mean, Steve, come on, you're being a little harsh, right? They don't have to be your <laughs> images. First two years, I used a lot of other photographers, but then eventually, I had. To- <laughs> yeah, people caught you on that whole Ansel Adams thing, right? I know. <laughs> now, Sarah, Sarah, you're at the heart of this. I mean, not in yeah. terms of the controversy, but in terms of the the photography vertical. What? How does this make you feel when you when you read this article? Um, I mean, it brings up a lot of. Uh, it's horrible, obviously, and it brings up a lot of issues. I mean, we see it in in not only um, in photography, but it, it, I was talking to a vendor the other day who's a florist, and and she had the same issue. There was a florist using images of a wedding that wasn't hers. They were she did not do the florals, you know. So mm-hmm. it's happening a lot in a lot of industries, but in photography in particular, obviously that that is. A horrendous thing and it's amazing that she went from having a even having a business to having no business within like 24 hours she had she had decided to shut her doors which you know was really it's the right thing to do but you know it was a really because of a of a poor choice but we have to think about where we're how we're using our images and what images belong to us i mean i have this question a lot when it comes to second shooters and we have second shooters who shoot with us and then they consider those their images and they're not their images they're they're ours because they're shooting for us for the day and it's the same kind of thing but a lot more of a gray area that you have to consider i mean um photographers my clients are contracted with me the photographs that are taken at their wedding are only allowed to be used by me over in our contract so if i allow other photographers to use the images i'm breaching contract to my client so there's a lot of you know even gray areas sometimes this is not one of them obviously but i think there's a lot of conversations that need to happen in the photography industry um, especially in weddings because we have multiple shooters at, at one event usually. So um, when it comes to copyright or use of images or improper use of images and, and even 
within whatever kind of photographer you are, you have to think about how you're using your images as well. Like, for instance, um, Colin Cowie wanted to use some images from a wedding that I had done, but it had been with another coordinator. And he he had wanted to use it for his new wedding website, which has nothing to do with his coordination. And they're happy to give credit to the coordinator. But that's ultimately, honestly, up to the coordinator in my eyes. Like, that's her work, I, even though I'm capturing it. Um, you have to consider not only your copyright and your images, but also what is in the image and sure. and you know model releases for for some people but also for us it's just like our our clients and the other vendors that we're working with so those are all things that you have to consider kind of that stem from you know around it's around just, i mean there. just overall you know clearly we all agree that it, it's wrong i mean just stealing in general is wrong but the the wrath of the social media verse i think is uh, it's swift, as we'd see, because she shut down in 24 hours, and I think it's going to be really hard for some, if she uses her real name and likeness online again to start up this kind of business because there are now thousands of people who know her as being dishonest online. So, Martin, totally. you know, Martin, looking looking at your work, so you know, like we were just talking about a minute ago, you're putting these really large images up on your new portfolio site. Are you worried that somebody might pull these down and use them in their own portfolio? Not really, because, I mean, I, I've had my images uh, stolen, I'm going to say, in, in the past. And I've got such a, a large audience for my own work that it literally takes just a few hours for someone to mail me and say, hey, Martin, I saw your website, your your image here. And I, I get them took down. I've, I've, I've not actually asked for money for these things because generally the, the times that it happens it's just someone putting them on the blog um and the i if if someone asks and credits me for if they want to put something on their blog then i'm usually okay with it as long as it's not for commercial use and it's you know if they remove my watermarks or, or they don't credit me then then obviously i'm going to come down on them but it, but especially if it's a commercial use i i literally copyright all of my images um, so I, I register them with the Library of Con Congress. So mm -hmm. yep. if if someone was to use my images in this way, then I'd be after a part of their profits. Um, and and I, it's I mean I, I'm very polar on this. If it's for personal use, be my guest. Um, if it's for personal use and you want to print, then support me by buying it. But yeah. Yeah. but if you if you want to stick it on your desktop, then fine. Um, but I, I mean I've, I've got to think. You know, back to the story, I've got to think that trying to be a sort of a, a good, I don't know, Dale Carnegie citizen here in that this person hopefully used the images initially thinking that, okay, I'm going to use these until I've got a portfolio of my own, which I can, which I can then replace it with. And, and I'd love to think that the, the plan was to, to do something more noble than actually replace the images, even like the, the, florist that sarah was just mentioning you know hopefully they they the problem was not so much that they weren't a very good florist but that they were um they just didn't have the ability to get any good photographs of their work and and you know i mean trying to sort of see the good side of things yeah. i'd just like i'd like to think that there there are some good uh, motives behind some of this but it, there's still never any excuse for stealing someone's work and and passing it off for your own. Um, so, it 
it's just one of those things that people learn the hard way sometimes. And, and like Steve says, you never get that reputation back. That person's done now, really. Uh, you know, they might as well go and buy a sewing machine and become a, <laughs> yeah. a I don't know. I mean, it, it takes the whole idea of fake it till you make it, you know, to a different <laughs> right. level. Now it's, it's fake, it, it, anyone... fake it and have an angry mob come after you and yeah. then you will never make it. <laughs> now, I don't think anyone actually saw this photographer's own pictures. I don't think there was any... As far as I can tell, I never saw any of her own pictures. So mm. the images that she she stole were were really strong images. So mm. the question is, she I a good mean, taste in, in you know she's a good yeah fair enough. But <laughs> good taste if she stealing. actually got a job, I mean, what did her pictures look like compared right. to the ones that she posted on her, her? I suspect that they're nowhere near as good. Yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. All right, well let's let's close this off with Sarah. Sarah. Um, advice to photographers, what, what advice would you give to a, a beginning photographer or maybe somebody who has a, you know, they're, they have chops as a photographer already, but they don't know how to get into the business. I know before you've said second shoot, but any other advice you'd give to people that other than stealing images? Yeah, well, second shooting is great for learning, not necessarily great for building your portfolio. For yeah. building your portfolio, I think the really the best way to do it um, is to a do some do some weddings for really cheap. The more you can get a bride like someone in a white dress <laughs> and a groom and, and be able to have some of those images that are your own, the better. I mean, I think the first wedding I shot, I shot for like $450. So, um, just get out and do it for, for cost if you, if you can. And then also, um, my, my favorite thing to do to get images that I'm really in love with is set up portfolio kind of shoots where you take someone maybe who's married already and didn't and didn't love their photos or maybe is just willing to do another shoot uh, trust me there are tons of women with a dress in a box in their garage that would love to just bust it out so if you can if you can idea. convince a friend to do that then you can go build your dream shoot you can take them to a mountaintop or anywhere that you want and have incredible photos that didn't necessarily weren't captured on awesome. a wedding day so that that's would be my That's a really suggestion. good idea. That's a really good idea. Cool. All right, I may do that. Um, <laughs> I know I, I, I have I have that wedding dress is still in the closet. I just had to dig it out now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right. Uh, <laughs> this show is getting out of hand. Every time Steve comes on the show, it gets out of hand. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's Steve. Steve's the one. Steve. Okay, it's all Steve's fault. Steve has that first name. Yeah. All right, guys. Right now, I'm going to do a quick insert of an interview that I did with Mr. Jeff Dunas. He's the mastermind behind the Palm Springs Photo Festival, which takes place in, you guessed it, Palm Springs. Um, it was just this past April, and both myself and Sarah were pri privileged enough to go in there and uh, give talks. Hey, Sarah, what was your talk on? It was on Aperture. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else? It's Aperture. All right. There is, but this one was Aperture. All right. Let's, uh, let's give this interview with Mr. Jeff Dunas a listen. I'm here talking with Mr. Jeff Dunas. He's a photographer, of course, first of all, but he's also the director of an event called the Palm Springs Photo Festival that takes place in, 
you guessed it, Palm Springs, California. And uh, Jeff has, has agreed to come on the show today to tell us a little bit about the, the festival, of course, and how it got started, but also about himself and his particular genre of photography and, you know, what do people get out of these events and all that cool stuff. So, Mr. Jeff Dunas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. All right. It's good to have you here. So, okay, um, let's talk about you. So, Jeff Dunis, the photographer, when did it all start for you? When did you decide, hey, this, this picking up this expensive piece of gear and lenses and lighting was a thing that you wanted to do forever? Oh, I think, you know, you hear this story probably every time you do an interview. But, you know, as a kid, just as a nine-year-old, eight or nine-year-old, I got fascinated with photography. I had a friend up the street that showed me how to make photograms, and uh, and I guess that started it. But uh, then I commandeered my mother's Graflex 22, and off I went. Um, just took to it sort of like a fish to water, I guess. What's it was a photogram, Jeff? I never. What is that? A uh, photogram is when you put a piece of light-sensitive paper, you know, uh, out and you put your hand over it or something and you turn the light on for a tenth of a second and you develop it and you get a, you know, basically a, a, an imprint of your hand oh, okay. or, or a shell or anything else, you know, whatever you want, scissors and all kinds of stuff. It's kind of Man Ray-esque. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's basically photography without a camera. Got it. And uh, so that was interesting. And I had this little dark room that I set up in our garage and, uh, you know, little by little just sort of went full on into photography as a hobby. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, and when it's a when photography becomes an obsession, then you have to ask yourself, well, what am I what am I doing with this? And then you suddenly get the idea. I think I'll become a photographer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try to make a living at this. Yeah, yeah, because someone probably said along the way, you you never have to work a day in, the, in your life if you're doing what you love, right? And yeah, well, it's never work, yeah. which in a way makes sense. It's not really work. Yeah. Um, if you're having, you know, if if you love what you do, I get up every day and I work twelve hours and have a really good time, and uh, you know, never. It's always been fascinating and intriguing, and it's always uh, captured my imagination. But you're one of those guys. I mean, you know, that has diversified and i talk about this a lot when i interview people that diversification is key you can't just throw your hat in the ring and well some people can depending but it's like lightning striking saying hey i'm gonna throw my hat in the ring i'm gonna i'm gonna make a gazillion dollars as a photographer i'm gonna be shooting on you know madison avenue down you know in new york and i'm gonna be that guy i'm gonna be the annie lebowitz you know so not everybody can do that but but the, the what I call the smart people are the ones that diversify and do other things along with the photography, and that seems to be what you've done with this Palm Springs Photo Festival. Is that right? Well, I don't know that I ever intended it to be to be a yeah. I mean, I guess you're right. Diversification is is uh, is one way of putting it. It's an extension, I think. You know, okay. but in, in my particular career, it's been. An unusual journey. I, I didn't have a standard journey. I always started out by making my own pictures and then marketing them. Yeah. And uh, so I never really was sort of staff at a magazine or, you know, like somebody's favorite guy at an ad agency uh, where I just had constant work flowing in without having to do anything other than answer the phone and go off and take pictures. So I always created stories or pictures and essays and whatever and sold them and uh, marketed them around the world. And, and that led me into a lot of very, you know, I guess diversifying is one way of putting it because I ended up publishing 
books of photography, and then I, I we we had a mail order business selling photo books for a while, and then we we launched a magazine, and then we bought a magazine, and uh, then we sold all that. You know, I sold all that, I guess you could say, and ended up uh, going full on back into fine art photography, where I spent the last t- sort of twelve years up until about '06, and. Uh, you know, and I still am a fine art photographer. I still am a commercial photographer. I'm proud to be both, and no worries. I never thought that there was a distinction. I just see that as part of the same thing. Yeah. And um, you know, but I also got involved as I had this experience in magazine publishing and book publishing. It brought me, you know, I kind of was connected with marketing, and I was connected with uh, with people that were uh, that ran magazines and you know various different aspects of the industry book publishers and printing. I did a lot of work on web offset presses and learned how to print, um, you know, and, and, and all of this sort of led me to a wider circle of friends, let's say, than the average photographer, I suppose, because I, I knew people in the book publishing industry and I knew people in the printing industry and I knew people in the magazine industry. I knew people in advertising and in direct mail and in commerce and all kinds of different areas, museums and galleries. And so therefore, when it came time to do this kind of a festival, the thing that came to my mind was there really wasn't any um, community uh, for photographers in the United States per se. Mm-hmm. And there is a festival of photography in France that's been going on since 1979, rather. Um, so I think it's 43 years or 42 years old called Arles. You know, it's in Arles, the city of Arles. And it was uh, – it has. It's all about exhibitions, and uh, so they turn the town into a big exhibit space with seventy-five, a hundred exhibitions, and and they do these great sort of evening presentations outdoors in this antique theater. And for years, I've been going there because I, I lived in France for twenty-three years, and a lot of my friends are uh, live there, or in Italy, or France, or Spain, and they all get together there. And it was a camaraderie, you know. There was a kind of a connection that we all have for that one week that was just priceless to me, and. Uh, fascinating, you know, to meet like-minded people. And, you know, when I grew up, photographers didn't want to meet each other or talk to each other. They were always afraid someone was out to steal their secrets. <laughs> their technique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, rip off their lighting or, or, you know, figure out what the next greatest thing that they're using was or whatever. So people really didn't have a, 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 an interest in hanging out together. And, uh, you know, in by 2006, I started to think about I kind of have this unique skill set where I could maybe put something like this together, just a small informal thing, and have it be an interesting event. And Palm Springs was definitely the place to do it because I, uh, my grandparents had lived there when I was a kid, and I used to spend a lot of time with them down there. And uh, I, you know, the town is similar in a lot of ways to Arles. It's a vacation place. It's a, uh, you know, it's a kind of has an incredible reputation. Uh, you know, people hear Palm Springs, they think of movie stars in the 30s and 40s and what have you. Um, but it also geographically is fascinating because it has amazing mountains. It has the Salton Sea. It has Joshua Tree National Monument. It has the desert. It has, you know, uh, modernist homes. I think the largest concentration of modernist homes in, in the United States, perhaps. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Uh, oh yeah. Ph- phenomenal mid-century houses and, and, and complete whole tracks still exactly as they were. Uh, a lot of interest in the architecture there. A lot of great architects worked there and made, you know, Lautner worked there and, and, and Frey and a lot of people. So Palm Springs has a lot going and you don't need a car. You know, it's got a great airport. So it, it was in a way similar in that respect to what Arl was in the, in the sense that it was a village environment where you could walk around. This, the weather was great and it's warm and it's, you know, it's like Arl in the summer except that it's in March. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in the lower desert in California. And it's the great thing about it is that it's within two and a half hours of 13 million people. 
and, and that's a unique thing. It's you know from San Diego or from L.A. or anywhere. You know, it's two and a half hours. So I started to think about it, and um, and I uh, I felt that there was. Um, it was a it was a changing time. Two thousand six was a time when we still actually in our first year had a symposium called Silver versus Digital, if you can imagine. <laughs> wow. And uh you know, and there was it was actually a discussion topic. Yeah. Uh and some and, people you know, are probably still discussing it, but just a couple, yeah. right? <laughs> well, we have long white beards and straw hats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a wooden tripod. Uh, but anyway, that, that became uh, – it, it was a good moment to, to, to launch into this kind of an adventure because there was – for the first time in my recollection, young people just starting out and, and mid-career photographers like myself all had the same set of problems. You know, when I was growing up, the the mid the mid career photographer had all the answers, was doing successful work, had his career happening, was having a great life, and I just wanted to figure out how how to get there. And you know, and so by the time that I got there and learned everything that there was to know, basically that I could ever need about photography, and really took it to multiply different levels and. Suddenly, it was a whole new ball game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it was an interesting time. So there was a, suddenly a lot of um, a lot of benefit to getting together and talking about this kind of thing. You know, getting together with other photographers and and, and helping young people, giving them a hand. And uh, you know, people just out of school that had spent you know a hundred thousand dollars on a you know, getting a degree in photography, mm-hmm. who who and their parents had chipped in another forty for cameras and computers, <laughs> suddenly had nowhere to go. Right, right. All dressed up, nowhere to go. And the Palm Springs Photo Festival became the place to go because there they could sit with people that they would never dream of meeting face-to-face and show their work to them in, a, in, an, in an environment of real positive willingness to share and help environment and, uh, and, and, and get their work shown and attend a class, for example, with a master photographer. And I don't – I mean that term is overused because everybody describes everybody as a master photographer. But people that, that we've invited – I mean we've had 400 people come and teach there over yeah. the seven, eight years we've done this. And and so it's an opportunity to spend you know three days with, with uh, Steve McCurry or with Bruce Davidson or Ralph Gibson or whoever. Uh, have your work seen by you – know, Five, ten, fifteen people that would be impossible to meet otherwise uh, from all over the world, and 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 basically each night see great work, and uh, and have a, a bunch of interesting network events. Well, here, uh, net- here's a here's a hot seat question for you. Um, so you know everyone's everyone's uh, you know pressed for money these days, and there's a lot of different events that people could go to. There's a Palm Springs Photo Festival, of course, which I'm a fan of. There's Photoshop World. There's WPPI, PMA, how would you position yourself amongst or in that crowd to say, okay, this is the one that you should go to? Like if someone just said, you know, I got, I got $1,500 or I got two grand to, to spend on that thing for the year, why should they come to the Palm Springs Photo Festival? Well, basically, I think several reasons, but the first is that we have a kind of a slogan, which is inspiration, education, and technology. And that pretty much sums up what we do. Uh, We're more about inspiration than any other event that I know of. I've taught at a lot of these other events and reviewed at a lot of events. And, you know, you have portfolio review events here and there. They're basically about fine art, though, Uh, you know, for the most part. They're not terribly about 
the commercial side of photography. Um, and there, then you also have a lot of workshop programs, but they're, they're often workshop programs, uh, uh, intended for amateur photographers, which is great. I mean, you know, that God bless them. They're the people that really support the industry on a ma- major scale. Right, right. Uh, uh, but, um, there really wasn't an event for professional photographers that, that was all about inspiration and education and the technology in an intimate environment where, you know, uh, where it was relaxed. It was over a week period with evening programs every night and so on. I mean, if you go to WPPI, that's a big trade fair. I mean, that's a huge major event with 10,000 people coming through there or 20, I don't know. And, 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 and it's all about, uh, it's a trade show concept with, with, uh, seminars and, and so on. They have a lot of really wonderful programming, but that's another planet than what we do. Um, same with, uh, you know, Photo Fest in Houston, for example. That's the sort of a fine art, uh, portfolio review event with exhibitions around it. They were inspired by Arl, Fred and, uh, and his wife. And, and that's fine. Uh, what we have is really, I think, the only place, uh, where a photographer can go where he's equally has one step in the commercial world and one uh, one foot in the commercial world and one, one one foot in fine art. It's it's equally blended out throughout the event. We see it as one one career. You're a photographer. You're a photographer. You know you should have work in museums and you should be shooting advertising campaigns and you should have uh, out you know you should have an opportunity to present work editorially and so on. It's all the same thing. You're a photographer. You're a photographer. You know that's yeah. kind of how I've lived my life. So if you're if you're a commercial photographer and you have an, you kind of think you're interested in, in pursuing a fine art, uh, uh, you know, at, at moving into the fine art realm. This is this is a place where you can go and still be a commercial photographer, and no one's going to look at your work and go, "Well, you're a commercial photographer. What are you doing here?" You know, uh, there is no event of any kind for just commercial photographers, and that's so we kind of have that unique uh, capacity to attract an equal number of people interested in fine art and commerce. And so you can come and show work to ad agency creatives, and you can show work to museum directors. You can you can present work in an evening presentation that will be seen by the entire photographic community. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that we do, I think, that really differentiates us in a way or distinguishes us is that we have probably the largest group of invited guests that you're going to see from across the realm of, of fine art. and Invited guest. What's an invited guest? Well, like you were an invited guest. Okay, uh, got it. In other words, people who ha- are, are distinctive in, in, in their career in the photography realm, whether that be commerce or fine art. So we had 125 guests this year. Those are faculty. We defer them, defer, uh, define them as faculty. So I had l- literally 125 people from uh, across the board. And if you go to the Palm Springs Photo Festival website, you'll see you can click on faculty and see the list of the people that you are going to be able to, to visit it with and see at the festival and that's amazing uh you know that's what i think i'm most proud of is i've been able to put together something uh that attracted people of that level uh from across the board in the world of photography from prominent book publishers i mean you know we had the the owner of chronicle books was one of the people there this year uh people from uh national geographic and the new york times and all the major magazines and and 15 ad agencies set creative directors and art buyers so that's something you don't really get anywhere else um if you're in the business of photography we're the place to go you know it's not a hobby for us we're not about amateurs um there's no real content for amateur photographers and that distinguishes us from other events um so 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 talk talk to me a little bit about the um 
the demographic or the breakdown of the people who come to the festival. So we, I mean, we talked about the skill levels and the, you know, the different, the different uh, types of photographers that might come commercial and professional, that sort of thing. But who's coming in terms of like, is it, is the, the event more older people? Is it younger people? Is it a mix of people? Is it, you know, people coming with their point, you know, who, who's there? If I come, who am I going to see? Well, in it, let's let's. There are four different groups of people at the festival. There are the attendees, of course, which are the professional photographers and the uh, serious advanced amateurs. We have about twenty percent of those that come, um, and those are photographers from across the whole spectrum. Um, in other words, you have people that are, like I said, you have people interested in, in getting into fine art who have been successful commercial photographers for years, and you have fine art photographers that are seeing the benefit of of working in the commercial area. And uh, and the people, you know, the the people that are in the positions to give work in the commercial area are looking at fine art photography more than they ever did before. You start to see a lot of this now everywhere. Has been for ten years. So you have that cross section of photographers. I would say the age group is probably the solid core of where we are. Uh, of who comes to the Palm Springs Photo Festival are working photographers from the ages of about thirty to fifty-five. Uh, those are people in their careers. Um, then we have about 22%, which which we call emerging photographers, people that have uh, recently graduated from programs, uh, you know, undergraduate and graduate programs, and people that have hung out their shingle and are on their way. Um, that's very, very important that we have those people there because a lot of what we do is has them in mind. Yeah. Uh, and them being in the same boat practically as the, uh, you know, mid-career photographers, it's kind of an interesting time. But uh, And then we have – uh, I'd say about close to 18, 20 percent of our people are, are really serious, advanced amateur photographers who come because they're terribly interested in fine art photography, as an example, and uh, you know, and they want to put a book together, or they 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 spend a lot of their time now shooting. Then you know, maybe they're retired, or maybe they've they're doing this as a second career, or they're thinking about it. So there's that group too. And then we have our faculty, which are amazing people in important positions throughout the industry that come. Um, so there's a big segment you know, uh, of, of the people at the festival who are faculty. I think the ratio is one to four. Wow. Um, for each attendee, I think you know, for each faculty person, we have four attendees. That's amazing. Uh, you know, it's unheard of. And yeah. then we have a group of volunteers, which are almost 100 people who are all emerging photographers. And they're there working with, with us to operate, make this festival happen. So, um, and so they're a considerable community too. And what we do for them is we make sure that they get uh, access to the programs that most interest them in, in the process of being a volunteer at the festival. So they get access to a lot of the things uh, uh, that, that they would ordinarily have to pay for. In exchange, they work with us and help us produce the event. So it's a really win-win for them. So you know, looking, looking into the future – um, what's next for these festivals? I mean, you know, I was at this last one that was, uh, that, you know, that was really, it was awesome. I wish I could have stayed longer, but what, uh, what are you, what are you planning to do to evolve it into something different or is it going to stay the same? Is it going to get bigger, smaller? What do you think? Well, you know what happens is that basically each year is, is has been different, and um, I, I don't really like to focus on the idea of growth because I'm not so sure that that that's necessarily a positive thing. Some of the really good events that I've been to in, in over the years have grown out of what they were into something that was you know uh, became something different. I'm I'm really not 
focusing on building it to be bigger. What I am focusing on is just continuing to build it to be better. And um, uh, this year, for example, we initiated a new program called the, the Midday Lecture, where we had museum curators, prominent museum curators, uh, do a one-hour talk at, at midday. So a lot of people on their lunch breaks and stuff could come and hang out and hear that. And that was, you know, we have a partner venue in the Palm Springs Art Museum, and that's where those were uh, uh, took place. And then we have we take over the Hyatt which is where all of our symposiums and reviews are. And, um, and then we have the, uh, a place called Karakia where we do all the workshop programs. So those – we can't really outgrow that. We grow too much bigger without having to start looking at other venues. And having three venues is plenty, I think, at this point. Um, but what we really focus on is the quality of the program and uh, the, the quality. We do symposiums every day where uh, people come to hear about about issues in, in our world today that are important to us and affect us, like how we can utilize the advocacy and work with NGOs to create, you know, to get financing to do things that we really believe in or change the world in some way or help to make the world a better place. We have uh, symposiums about how young people get off the ground in photography and we bring people from the PDN Emerging 30 onto a panel and talk about how they got started their careers um we have another program that's that varies each year one of them was called the uh the uh um, editorial photography conference and one of them this year we did one last year we did one on on uh, uh monetizing the internet these are things that we all need to understand yeah. uh, you know and then we have a, a heavy duty seminar program with 20 seminars uh, that happen throughout the week so someone like yourself can come and teach a workshop about social media a, a, symposi- a seminar rather and i can have seminars on on photoshop advanced and we can do lightroom and we can do uh things about photography and the written word and you know there's all these different kinds of areas to, to touch on over a two-hour period yeah. so that happens and all day long all these things are going on and i think my my job is to continually refine how that works and and continue to see this all mesh as 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 evenly as possible and still provide a lot of opportunity to be in Palm Springs in in 85 degree weather in the middle of March or you know uh I get a chance to make some good photographs and 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 come and hang out at these network events that we do where you can interact with all these various people that are part of our faculty and our sponsor program. We have a lot of wonderful sponsor support. And uh, without them, this wouldn't happen. So you have to, you know, I guess a lot of what I do is is, is work with the sponsors to make sure that their experience uh, is, is, you know, benefits them and that they, they get something out of it also. And it's not just a connection with all the people, but it's an opportunity to test things and put new stuff out there and see how people respond to it and get their points of view. And, uh, you know, Blurb is one of our major sponsors. And one of the things that Blurb does is really talk to to people in the uh, – in the um, sorry, it's, it really speak to the photographers about their – product and find out what they'd like, what would be good, show them the new stuff, see how they like it, see how they work with it. So it's kind of an interesting summit. And I, I encourage photographers, if they're serious, to come because the result is you walk away with your head in the clouds. Yeah. Really yeah. That's what's interesting about these things is you, you, you go and you, you take yourself out of your normal routine and your normal comfort zone and you're kind of marinating with a bunch of other photographers that are that are passionate about this stuff mm-hmm. and then you sprinkle in instructors and people that know more than you and they're and they're adding they're stoking the fire and then you leave there glowing with oh wow you know like a renewed sort of passion for photography yeah it's exactly what we attempt to do we want you to renew your your passion for photography and that's again well we direct that as the it, it there's where you have that similitude between the emerging photographer and the the mid-career photographer it's it it's igniting this passion and giving some form and direction to it yeah 
Oh, and we've we've had so many success stories come out of the festival. People that have gotten great opportunities, great jobs. Books have been published, and exhibitions have been mounted, and and people have gone off into the four corners of the world and come back with projects that uh, they would never really have been able to figure out how to create or produce. And and we've given them a, a direction. Um, I try to keep it very concrete. We want facts. You know, we want we want real important information. We're not interested in abstract kind of theoretical. Discussions. We're really interested in this. Is these are important tools, and here they are, and yeah. you can these, and you can start to use these right away. I mean, that's the kind of way I think photographers want things to be. You know, um, so it, it it has it has it touches on inspiration in that you can attend amazing events where you can learn and hear uh, uh, about success stories, people that have done great things and how they've done it. And we ask them specifically to break it down. How did you do this? Mm-hmm. You know. You, you guys, people tend to get off on these generalized discussions and, and, and it doesn't really – it's not satisfying. What's satisfying is for someone to say, I started out, I did this, I did that, I did this. This is what happened. This is the person that I met. This is the person that gave me a hand and the next thing I knew I was doing this and whatever. You know, it, it's really like that. So people walk away really, really reignited and go back to work You know, with a vengeance. Yeah. That's what to accomplish. That's really cool. That's really cool. So where where uh, where would you like people to go to learn more about the festival and maybe to see some of the stuff that you've worked on and all that all that magic? Maybe some photograms and all that. Well, those I don't know where they are, but I do <laughs> do have uh, the the website for the festival is simply uh, palmspringsphotofestival.com. And uh, uh, people can see some of my work. I haven't really dis- put much effort or energy into my own website in many many years. Um, for a lot of reasons. And so what I have is a series of slideshows up. I just decided to cut to the chase. I put six bodies of work up, made them into slideshows and put that on a web. <laughs> uh, that's cool. Cut to the chase. Yeah. It's like, Hey, you want to know about me? This is what I do. <laughs> you know? There's no like clever links. I don't have any Java applets. There's no, there's no, like no way to really, uh, uh, um, you know, I'm not trying to attract you with all of the web skills that I have or can I, can acquire. Yeah. It's, really basic dumb site but what it does is at least it gives you a selection of the bodies of work that i like to work on so you know you can see that at dunas.com that's dunas d-u-n-a-s.com yeah i mean it is uh it's really you'll see it's i think it's a remnant of two of 1996 or something but <laughs> that's cool <laughs> all right i'll definitely check that out all right jeff well, well thank you for uh for taking the time today and thanks for you know a personal thanks for building that festival it's it's and it's you know, it's it's a much needed event in the industry for, and it, it, like you were saying, it sort of sits in this unique little niche there that uh, that is underserved. So thanks for building that, and thanks for keeping it going for eight plus years. Yeah, I, I think it's it's been it's been a very interesting experience for me to be at the crux of all this uh, change and this interesting new uh, time that we're all living in, and uh, and we all love getting our hands on the gear. So that's also part of it. And you you, you come and hang out, and you see all the latest gear. It's kind of fun. Uh, all right. I hope to see you there next year. Yeah, I'll definitely be there. Hey, who can turn down Palm Springs? So. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Thanks so much. Okay, Frederick. Appreciate it. Yep. Take care. All right. You can learn more about Jeff and the Palm Springs Photo Festival by visiting their website. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as to their various social networking sites. 
really good interview. All right. Uh, right now, a quick nod to our sponsor, who is Squarespace.com. They are the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. And Squarespace.com is really interesting. I wanted a, a couple of new things on Squarespace. Um, they've got some interesting things happening in June. It's one of the best times in the history of Squarespace to uh, set up a new account. They've got, uh, of course, they got that annual plan that we've been talking about where you can get a free domain plus, uh, you know, a free domain at the lowest price plus 10% off. Now they're offering free domain registration to all annual plan customers and it's completely integrated with their sign-up process. So it's a hassle-free setup. And it's, you know, roughly about a $15 value. So, you know, just jump in there and get it going really quick. They recently reduced their prices and they've dropped things down to as low as $8 a month. For all that functionality that we've been talking about in the show, you can get into it for as low as 8 bucks a month, which is really, really cheap when you consider that uh, that's less than hosting costs, you know, from uh, from a lot of places. And you're getting hosting plus the website and the UI and all the stuff on top of it. And they're still giving away 10% off your first first purchase for all new accounts. So that's 10% off your first month on monthly plans and then 10% off the first year on annual plans. So offer code is uh, number six. Let's see. I think our offer code is, let me find that. It is TWIP6 for June. It's TWIP6. Use that. You don't need a credit card. You can sign up, build your website, and uh, don't forget, you'll get free domain registration with your annual plan subscriptions. Again, that's TWIP6. All right, hosts, co-hosts, it's time for listener Q&A. This is a segment where our guests, that's you guys, answer questions that have come in from the listener base, um, specifically about things that are bothering them. Question number one is about cultural sensitivities in photography. Hmm, Martin. <laughs> I'm going to let you read this one. Take it away, because I, I, I have a feeling you have some opinions on this. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a question from Chuck Origa, um, I'm going to say. I uh, hope I haven't just butchered your name, Chuck. Um, but the question is, do you think that photographers from different cultures project different sensibilities in their photographs? If you were to look at the portfolios of two photographers from different cultures, would you be able to detect the cultural DNA of each photographer? And this is a great question. And until probably a few years ago, I would have said definitely yes, there's a difference between the photos that come from one culture compared to another. But I mean, I mean, well, for example, the, I, I was never all that enamored with a lot of the Japanese photographers work here. Um, and in the, I think the, the Japanese culture generally, um, once someone reaches a certain point in their career, they get a, a group of people that form around them that do nothing but tell that person how wonderful they are. Mm, Sycophants. Yeah. Right. And, and even when you look at the work of some professionals here, it's pretty, pretty poor. You know, they, they literally, they, they don't do that good work. And yet they're on, they're in all of the magazines and they, you know, they, they're basically, they've got, they fill their workshops because they're, they're famous in that, you know, they, they've been put on that pedestal. Mm. Um, and so I think that that happens in, in, in Japan for sure. 
Um, is it like kind the, of a kind of a groupthink mentality <clears throat> in terms of hey, you're if if Martin says you're good, you must be good, and right. if Martin and that person say you're good, then you're definitely good, and then on and on and on. Right. I, I think that that's certainly been been the case. But what I think is happening, and I think this is happening the world over, is that you know until fifteen, ten, fifteen years ago, if you wanted to consume photography, you had to buy magazines or books and things. And you were still limited to what you could see. But now we've got sites like 500px and Flickr, you know, all of the sites that started this sharing. We can share now with the world in, in a, you know, within minutes of, of actually making the images if we want to. Yeah. And so that we've got exposure to so much more photography now that I think these, these kind of, you know, the, the borders are, are coming down. And what we're finding is... Uh, it's like the younger generation of photographers in Japan is are coming out with some amazing work. And so I, I think it's obviously Japan's been I'm not saying that all of the, the old pros were bad because there were some amazing photographers here in Japan. And even the guy I mentioned earlier, Hiroshi Yokoyama, he's, he shoots some of the most amazingly sensitive nature and wildlife shots that I've seen. I mean, he used to be a professional um, winter sports photographer, but now he's... Uh, He's lived in Hokkaido for the last 25 years or so, and he does amazing work. So it's definitely not, you can never tar the whole sort of, you know, culture with one brush. Um, but yeah. I think that there's, there was a tendency for this to be, to be a bit of a problem in that there were people that were creating whole bodies of work that I personally didn't think were that great. Yeah. And, and that's always only going to be my opinion as well. But there's, with the internet and having so much exposure to, um, you know, to so much great work all around the world, I think that the level of quality of photography is is getting higher and higher by the year. And I think that the boundaries are coming down. People people are now influenced by photography from all around the world. So not it's not just, like it's not regional anymore. It's not like right. oh, you can tell that photographer is from Spain, you know, and this photographer is from Japan. You wouldn't be able to pick them out because of the great equalizer um, or homogenizer that is the internet, right? Exactly. But the, the fact is that, uh, you know, when I look at one of the photographers that I truly admire, uh, Joseph Kudelka, and I looked at sort of the magic and the mystery of the work that he produced, I think part of it um, was the, the palette of Eastern Europe from which he worked. So people in different cultures generally are working in the place that they live, chances are. I mean, of yeah. course, they travel around. But there's a certain um, kind of uh, uh, visual sensibility, if you will, that, that, that is communicated just by virtue of the fact of where they are geographically. So, so I think that comes across. But then again, yeah. when you see all these professionals that travel around the world, um, you're right. Uh, there are no borders. Um, Fatarvi is a universal language. And, but you know and, and, where, yeah. where that breaks down, both of you, where that where that that you know the the internet is the great equalizer is in weddings i think sarah right so if you're yeah. if you're shooting a wedding in southern california then you switch gears and you go to shoot one in india and you shoot one in england and you shoot one in new zealand you know each one of those weddings is going to have separate expectations and and se separate court cultural norms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable in that wedding album right yeah, we have an interesting thing in the wedding industry. You know, um, I get this all the time. I'll have, I just last week had an Indian couple call me and they're like, hi, have you shot an Indian wedding before? Can you show it to me? So do you know about 
all these different cultural things that we have that go on at weddings and That's really you just it's go about... steal some images from the from some... <laughs> <laughs> totally right no. i'm sorry sarah go ahead. <laughs> it's when it's when i call um one of my coordinators who does a ton of ethnic weddings and i'm like tell me everything about an indian <laughs> wedding yeah you know i'm like no no i totally know all about it but and i can totally do a great job don't worry i mean you can study up on the cultures and know enough about it that you're prepared for it but um a lot of times they they're worried you're going to miss something something that's really important to them so Cultural differences in in wedding photography are huge. I know mm-hmm. so many Indian couples who will hire an Indian photographer or a Persian or I mean you can you name it. So any kind of culture wants someone who understands their culture, understands their traditions, and is going to know what and how to capture it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of what I'm telling my clients is if if that's what you want and that's the focus of it, I understand that. But understand that every photographer is different and and they might be so used to your culture that it's not as special anymore or it's mm-hmm. not as unique or they see it differently mm-hmm. than I see. I'm going to see it as being fresh and so enamored by it. So the fascination that comes with discovering something new as a photographer, as a wedding photographer for myself, I, I fully embrace and want to do so many different kind of cultural weddings that the first um, Jewish wedding that I shot was so fascinating and beautiful and amazing. And I'm sure I captured completely different things than what um, someone who was used to the Jewish culture would have captured. So it just gave such a fresh eye and perspective to it. So I, I, in our industry, it definitely, if I was answering Chuck's question, I would say that it's definitely going to bring a different sense you know, sensibility to the photographs or sensitivity even to the moments. So um, that's definitely going to happen in wedding photography. And I think that a lot of times in wedding photography, you can somewhat tell maybe if the photographer was part of the culture or not. There's there's some kind of traditional feel sometimes that comes with it um, when there's maybe a photographer that they chose because they were a you know um a persian and they shoot persian weddings and that's what they do but that's also a complete marketing and branding thing it's like i'm a persian photographer and they will be booked all day long you know every weekend so i think there's a lot of sensitivity and there's a lot of um cultural things going on in the wedding industry when it comes to photography but i definitely see what you guys are saying outside of that it's a completely different completely different world and and mostly ours is just because of the cultures and traditions that we need to understand in order to capture things properly like um, I'll give you one more example. I could just because so many are coming into my head, but um, I shot an Asian couple at the Ritz in Laguna last weekend, and I shot their engagement. And he called me afterwards, and he was like, "Oh, my God, I love them. They're so amazing. There's a few photos I want to bring your attention to because Asian people do not like to be shot from lower angles." Mm. 
they want to be shot from higher angles down. And it's very much a cultural thing. And he was explaining the whole thing to me. I was like, that's fascinating. I have no idea. So, you know, I was able to kind of to just make that small adjustment um, for them for their wedding. But, that's yeah, really there's cool. there's a you, lot you know, of interesting know, thing that comes out. You know what? That I I'd, I'd not thought at all about the the wedding aspect. That's um, that's incredibly interesting. What you what you've added there, Sarah. But uh, one thing that I I did want to just say is that I based basically on what you just said. I've lived in Japan so long that exactly like you said, I don't see a lot of this as being new. It's not a new culture to me. So. Um, I've, I've mentioned this to people before. They say, yeah, and I'm certainly wasting a lot of the opportunities that I could get here because it's, it's my home. I, I've lived here for 21 years and, and I, it just is not new to me. So, and, and you just reminded me of that, Sarah. Um, but also, I think that because of the fact that I've, I'm originally from a totally different culture, I, I was talking with a, a guy, the, the editor and owner of a, a landscape magazine over here a few weeks ago, and he pointed out a number of my images and said, these are more Japanese than Japanese photographers shoot. And, and, and that probably is because of the, the, the fact that I'm looking at it at, from a different culture. So, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's a great point that you, that you added there. On. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think, you know, we're, we're painting broad strokes on it, of course. But like what, what we, you and, and Steve were saying, I think, generally speaking, is like landscapes and, you know, Things like that, yeah, it's it's democratized a lot and it's mm. homogenized across because of the internet. But when you get into more ritualistic type things like weddings, of course, you For know sure. there are going to be sensitivities and different things that different cultures and different parts of the world will want to see in their in their photos or would not want to see, like the shooting up, you know, from low angles, right, sir? Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right. Uh, this next question is from Michael Vinson. He writes, I just returned from Yosemite and did a lot of work with polarizing filters, um, neutral, densi- neutral density uh, graduated filters to hold down the sky and uh, other neutral density filters to shoot moving water. He wants to know, how would you handle multiple filters for a single exposure and how do you avoid vignetting on a wide angle lens? Um, so I don't understand this question. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you putting multiple, you putting, why are you putting multiple filters on a lens unless you're using, you know, you don't have the right neutral density filters. So you had to stack them, you know, to get the amount of, of, uh, or the, the length of exposure that you were going for in order to get that moving water. But I don't know, Martin, do you have any thoughts on this one? I, yeah, I, Generally, my, my biggest thought on this is that if I stop using ND grads, <laughs> first of all, stop you, them. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're a few extra grams in your bag, um, which you could live without. Uh, now, I mean, obviously, there are going to be times where an ND grad is still, u- still useful, but I literally stopped carrying them years ago because if I need an ND grad, I'll, I'll shoot two images and merge them later in photoshop um there's it's very rare that nature provides you with even with the the graduated um you know the difference between the neutral neutral density area and the clear area even if that's a nice gradual thing it's very rare that nature provides you with a skyline or something that is that is perfectly straight and so i i literally i'm you can get rid of your nd grads right there just by just by not using them and shoot two images um but the obviously, if you do, if 
if you if Michael does want to continue to use his neutral grads, then the only way that I know of using multiple filters at once, and I do this sometimes, I'll nest filters to get more neutral density. I use a lot of neutral density filters, just not not grads. Um, and I just make sure that I buy the ones that are that are often marked as as wide. Um, they and they're usually very thin. The 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 thread, the screw thread is is shorter and it, they're very thin. So you can normally stack two of those, whereas you and get the same sort of um, thickness as as an older or a non-wide filter. They're usually a little bit more expensive, but if you make sure that you go for the wide filters, that that'll give you the ability to stack more of them. Um, but also, uh, let's see, how, how do you handle multiple filters for a single exposure? Yeah, I mean, it, he's, he's certainly saying that he wants to do it all in a single exposure. So just go for the wide ones. Um, and also, the another way that you could do it, well, actually, I was going to say again, shoot, shoot multiple images. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you need a, if you need a, wide, a wider shot, then I was going to say do a panorama, you know, use a longer focal length, um, and, but then do a panorama. But it, obviously, if you're if you're doing long exposures, you want lo- really long, like multiple minute exposures, and you're going to want the water to look the same in both. And it's not always going to work. So, right. li- really, the only way to do this and in one exposure is to try and buy buy the thin framed uh, filters. And if if you're using too many of them, then you, you're going to end up with some sort of uh, vignetting. So the other the other thing would be obviously to shoot a little bit wider than you know you're going to need and then crop out the corners, um, things like that. Yeah, I don't think there's much reason to stack filters. You know, you could, if you want to use the neutral density, Singray makes an amazing, I think it's seven or nine step uh, neutral density filter that will work on your wide angle. You can dial in whatever uh, neutral density factor you want up to seven or eight stops, I think it is. You know what, Steve? That that actually doesn't work well with wide angle. Um, you get a you get a cross pattern across the. I've got one, and and at seventeen millimeters or or sixteen seventeen millimeters and around there, at certain points you actually get this polarized effect where you get a, a black cross right across the frame. So mm. I I actually only use my my Singray Vary ND on my longer longer lenses it works great on the on the 70 to 200 things like that but on do they wide, not make a, a thin version for wide angle it's it's not the I, i've got the thin version um but it's it's not the the it's not the vignetting you actually get a cross it's literally as though someone takes a a huge brush in photoshop and just just painted on two black scoops lines oh, wow. diagonally across wow. the screen yeah yeah I- it doesn't happen all the time, but but with wide-angle lenses, it's a huge problem with the Singray, and I, I literally stopped taking mine out because yeah. of that. Um, because really, I, you know, for for using the neutral density, for for as far as I can tell, one of the main uses is when you're dealing with water, because water yeah. can be very ethereal and beautiful. So I haven't had that problem, but uh, it's it's good that you noted it all. I'll have to maybe go back and, and check some of the images that I did and, and look for. All right, guys, let's let's jump into the picks of the week. We're running a little bit long here, so let's, uh, Sarah, let's go to your pick of the week first before we move on. Okay, so my pick of the week, um, I'm gonna go. I have two, and I can't decide which one to do, but I'm, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with um, the undefined bag. So um, this is a camera bag that I picked up at WPPI, and um, I have been using it for the last 
uh, however long since then. I have both versions. They have a they have the one system, which is the one bag, and then they have a waste shooter. Mm-hmm. I've been using the one system, and and I'll tell you what I like about the bag. Um, they the inside basically comes with an insert that you can put into it so that you can make it a camera bag or you can take the insert out and make it a laptop bag. Yep. So that alone is really cool. I've used it for both and um, I've really enjoyed it. So my my big thing with this bag that I've always had an issue with with some other bags that I've tried is that um, the insert actually keeps the bag open so that I can quickly and easily like throw lenses in and out it's not it's got kind of a um i don't even know what the material is like a a elastic material on the on the outside pocket but the inside because of the insert keeps it nice and and open so for my big you know lenses that are like 50 millimeter 1.2 with a hood on it and my 85 with a hood those lenses i need to be able to pull out quickly and easily with one hand um and i'm constantly switching lenses so i i'm really enjoying both the insert of this and the use of it as a laptop bag and i also really enjoy the strap because it has a really nice cushiony arm on it and it doesn't move around it's basically one the um, I don't know what you'd call it, but the cushion for your arm is basically in place. Yeah, it, and it, it just it grips. It grips. Com- it has the right amount of grip because I have one of these as well, right? So it has yeah. a, it has the right amount of grip. It's not too much, so it's sticking. It's not too little, so it's sliding off, right? Yeah, and I'll tell you that that when I first saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like a shoot sack knockoff. And I I love the people at shoot sack, and I think that this is a great bag as well. There's lots of people who use it, but um, I am just enjoying um, the and seeing that this is a lot different than a shoot sack. Like it, it actually works and functions a lot different. The only real similarity that I've found is that it has interchangeable covers so i've seen the interchangeable covers and that initially like totally turned me off i'm like oh no i can't even look at that bag it's a, totally a knockoff but um once i got my hands on one and checked it out i was like okay this really is a lot more different than i realized in the beginning and um and yeah i'm i'm actually really enjoying the bag so i thought i'd make that my pick and that's undefined in there we'll put the link in there but it's u n d Find undefined. There, you're talking about their one bag system. So, yeah, very. Yeah, cool. yeah. All right, Martin. Uh, what is your pick of the week? I'm gonna go for Trigger Trap, and I, I don't think this has been mentioned on the show before. But mm, it's so. basic. It's basically a in its simplest form. It's a, a cable release, but it's on your iPhone. So basically, you buy the app for nine ninety nine. Um, and you can use it to trigger the, the phone, the camera that's in the iPhone. But if you also go to their website, you can buy a, a physical cable that you plugs into pretty much most. Of, they've got Canon, Nikon. I think they've got Olympus. There's a, there's cover various cameras, but it literally just you plug it in from your iPhone to your camera, and it it becomes a a, a cable release. But also you can use it for the intervalometers it, it it responds to bangs so if you if you clap or or make sounds near it you can literally fire your camera by clapping your hands 
Um, it's got distance lapse, seismic, so it'll you can take photos if you get an earthquake. Um, it's got let's see HDR. So that, that, that clapping feature, it sounds like the clapper, and I know that's how Steve turns the lights off before he goes to bed at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let me turn it back on. Yeah. <laughs> But literally, that's it. That's it. It's, it's it's got a lot of great features, um, and it it's relatively inexpensive. The cable, I think, was was like twenty dollars or something, and they sent it directly to Japan. And the so you talk, it, it's not totally inexpensive because you have to pay for the app itself, which is you know I would have liked to have seen it where you buy a cable and they'll send you the app for free. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still not a huge amount of money, and it's uh, I've always got my phone with me if I just make sure that I. I, I put the cable into my bag as well. I'm set. Very cool. All right. And that's called the trigger trap, right? Yep. That's it. Awesome. Steve Simon, what's your pick of the week? Okay. Well, Sarah inspired me. I, everybody that knows me on the show knows I have a bag problem, like so many photographers. And on my recent <laughs> trip, a I, little a little cold cream under the eyes yeah. will we'll fix that right <laughs> up, Steve. Yeah, my, my, that is awesome. My, <laughs> My wife calls the closet the Marx Brothers closet from that. So, you know, when you open it, all the bags come uh, out. Nice. So I got a lot of bags. But, you know, for this recent trip to Copenhagen, um, I got a hold of uh, a low-pro bag. It's a Pro Messenger series, and it's it's really nice. It's really kind of stealthy. It's got these really huge Velcro things that let you cover it up. And it just really fit the, a nice mirrorless system, just about everything that I wanted. What's um, what's the bag called again? It's from Low Pro, it's right? Called, it's, yeah, it's called the Pro Messenger series. Now, I've they're a Canadian company. I've had a relationship with them, so occasionally I, I don't get much free stuff. But this one, um, they sent me to to try out, and I have to say that uh, it was my favorite bag of the moment. And you know, I've got many many bags, and will continue to have the bag problem maybe there's some sort of support group we could you know, set <laughs> I know. Up you know and you know part of the problem is Derek's story who's also a friend of twip is the low pro evangelist oh so, so I, you, you can know where that leads right <laughs> that lead anywhere good but anyway it's a great bag it's really kind of they come in different sizes it's very stealth like i like a lot of the think tank products but this one i think that it's a real winner um this this series and I know there's so many different bags up there so check that one out all right, cool. I just put a link in that uh, in the show notes for that. And quickly, my pick is you know something a listener sent me um, as a thank you. So thank you for sending this in. Um, but it's called the Gray Thingy, and it's a <laughs> that's actually the name. It's called this is, this is brilliant. It's called Gray Thingy, and it's it's a really simple iPhone case. You've seen this the style a million times, but this one is an eighteen percent gray which means you throw in your iPhone and you're out shooting, so you're doing portraits or something, you give your subject or whatever you're shooting, you put this in the scene and take a photo with this in the scene, and later when you're in Lightroom or Photoshop or Aperture, Sarah, you can, Steve, you can um, you can balance using the 18% gray, so you always have something in the scene that you know exactly what color it's supposed to be, therefore you can lock the other, other colors in place. And the problem with a lot of gray cards is they're either in your bag or you left it at home or... You know, or you find something else in the scene that's kind of 18% and you balance off of that. With this, typically we always have our phones with us, so now you always have a great card with you. And it's really cool. So, And no disrespect to this product, but photographers will, will buy anything, let's face it. Anything that, you know, a great card, iPhone case, yes, got to have. 
<laughs> Don't hate on it, Steve. It's great. It's, it's the great thingy. I like it. All right. Uh, that's it, guys. We're at the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Sarah France, where would you like people to go to keep up with your wonderful self? Um, you can always go to sarahfrance.com and my name is spelled with no H S A R A and France, just like the country or Google me. You can find me on Twitter, Google plus Facebook, anywhere. <laughs> you are, you are online and exposed. I am for sure. <laughs> right. Yes. And Martin Bailey, where are you at online? I, everything that I'm into is linked from the top page at martinbaileyphotography.com. And remember, I'm still at, I'm still trying to gauge interest in the pixels to pigment um, seminar that I'm thinking of taking on the road. We've got good numbers so far, so I think it's going to happen. Uh, but if anyone's interested in in actually meeting in person and and learning a little bit about color management and printing, then uh, we we've got we've got the opportunity. So and where's that? Where's that going to be at? That's at pixels2pigment.com. Um, it's either a TO or number two, um, but it's, it's all linked from martinbaileyphotography.com. So awesome. cool. that'd be great. Very good. And Mr. Steve Simon, where are you at on the internets? Well, I wanted to promote <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a workshop that I'm hopefully going to do in, in Lucerne, Switzerland, August 11th and 12th. Mm. It's called meettheshooters.com. And... Uh, yeah, it's 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 a workshop, uh, passionate photographer workshop, in Switzerland, which is beautiful. Very cool. And this is this nice. is part of your passionate photographer brand or the series that you put together, right? Yeah, kind of. It is. I mean, I've been doing this workshop in different places, and um, these people in in Switzerland uh, called me up. So we'll we'll see if it. Uh, um, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it, it's just been kind of posted and. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, there's still a few spots available, so I'm hoping that uh, uh, some Swiss people or people that are interested in going to Switzerland and learning more about the passion of photographer will, will come by. It's August 11th and 12th. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks, guys. And as always, to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, be sure to check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, as I've been saying, please leave us a comment on iTunes and support us that way. And, of course, speaking of iTunes, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with our shows as soon as they are released. And finally, if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me and my various projects at frederickvan.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a PixelCore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.